I invite you to turn first to the Canons of Dort, to Article 17 of the first head of doctrine. You'll find that on page 900 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, or 263 in the Book of Forms and Prayers. This article has to do with the salvation of deceased infants of believers. And I want to read the article to you. Article 17, since we must make judgments about God's will from His Word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they, together with their parents, are included, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children, whom God calls out of this life in infancy." And then we want to turn to the Word of God, to the uh, book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12. You'll find that on page 335 in the Pew Bible, 2 Samuel 12. This follows uh, the uh, great sin of David. In the matter of Uriah, the, one of his soldiers, and Nathan came and rebuked David, and then uh, Nathan assures David that his sins are forgiven after David confessed his sins to the Lord, and uh, David was also told that one of his sons, or his son, was going to die. And then we pick it up at the middle of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, 
and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I have, in the good providence of God, never officiated at the funeral of an infant. That, it seems to me, would be a very difficult call to fulfill. I have attended the funerals of infants, and I have seen the little casket carried by the father and then placed in the grave. But as difficult as it is to participate in the funeral of an infant, it is particularly a challenge if it is your own infant. If God in His wisdom calls one of your children as a baby out of this life and into the next, it takes great grace and fortitude and sustaining mercy of God to undergo such a trial. Thankfully, the infant mortality rate is a lot less than what it once was. I think about John Owen, the great English Puritan of the 1600s. He had 11 children and saw only one of the 11 live beyond infancy. What a trial and hardship that must have been for him. But even if we haven't had the heartbreak of an infant being taken out of this life, many of us have experienced child's children in utero being taken from us through miscarriage. Some of you have experienced that in the past, and the experience is still quite raw for you because of the sadness that you experience. And the question I want to ask this evening is, is there any comfort from the Lord regarding the infant children that He takes from us in infancy? Is there any hope? Is there any comfort? What can we say to grieving parents who have lost their loved ones as infants? Well, what we are going to see is that the church has confessed, and it has confessed this on the basis of the Word of God, that believing parents should not doubt the election and salvation. That is, godly parents should be confident of the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. And I want to demonstrate that to you this evening from the Word of God so that if you are in that particular situation or if you have opportunity to minister to others who are in that situation, you might be able to give the life-giving and refreshing words of the Word of God. We pick up the story of Nathan and David uh, just uh, after Nathan has gone home. David had been assured uh, by the prophet upon his confession of sin that the Lord had put away uh, your sins. He shall not die, though he committed a grievous sin, numerous sins with Bathsheba in the context of Uriah, uh, her husband. God was merciful to David and did not hold his sins against him. However, Nathan not only left with those words of good news in David's ears, 
he also told David the chilling reality that his son, with whom Bathsheba was now pregnant, his son was going to die. And after Nathan left, the Lord did afflict the son that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And it was that situation that prompted such incredible extremes in David the king. While the child was sick and still alive, we read there in verse 16 that David sought God on behalf of the child. He fasted, he wept, he lay on the ground all night long. He refused to go to bed. He refused to eat, even though uh, the elders of his house stood beside him and encouraged him. And then on the seventh day, the child died. And then the situation of David completely changed. If he was extreme in one way, when his son was alive but ill, he became extreme in the other way. In fact, David's behavior was so peculiar that his servants did not know what to do when the child finally died. They thought that David, in such distress while the child was alive, was going to lose it once he heard that the child was actually dead. They thought he might fly off in a rage, that he might do harm to others, or even that he might do harm to himself. And so they were so gingerly about this situation and didn't want to tell David the reality of the death of his son. Well, David heard them whispering together, and he put two and two together, and he asked them the question that no one wanted to answer. He says, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Well, as I said, if he acted peculiarly before, he did so even more so now. We read that David then arose from the earth, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, went into the house of the Lord and worshiped, and then he went to his own house and he asked for food, and when it was set before him, he ate it. And his servants were puzzled. What is going on, David? Why, when the child was alive, though ill, did you act that way, fasting and weeping for the child? But now that the child's dead, you rise up and eat food. It seems that this is completely backwards. It seems that you ought to be in more grief now than you were before. What is going on, David? David answers them, and we want to look at his response. So first of all, why was David in such distress when the child was alive? Why did he fast? Why did he pray? Why did he refuse to go to bed while the child was alive? Well, I think the first answer to that question is because he understood his own complicity in this child's situation. It appears that the child was born healthy, and then the Lord afflicted the child with sickness. And the reason the child was afflicted with sickness was because it was David's sin. It wasn't just that unluckily the child got ill. No, it was a direct response to David's disobedience. It was the consequence of his own sin. So that we see here in 2 Samuel 12, verse 13, or 14 rather, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. 
And so David understood that the sickness and then the death of the child was a result of his own sin and the scandalous behavior in the affair of Uriah. So that was the first reason. David understands and feels the weight of his own responsibility for it. But there's another reason that David himself gives in verse 22. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. And so this is the scenario that's playing through David's mind. I know what God has said. I know that the Lord has said that this child born to me shall die. And yet I'm going to pray that this child will live. Now, you might think that David is resisting the will of God here, that he should have just acquiesced in it. But David knew God, and he knew that at times God threatens with a punishment in order to draw from us repentance and trust in Him. Remember what Jonah said to the city of Nineveh, yet 40 days and the city will be destroyed. And it was that threat of judgment that the Lord used to work about repentance in the Ninevites so that they confessed their sins before the Lord, and then the Lord spared them. The judgment was a threat in order to bring them blessing. And so David reasons that way. Who knows, he says. Perhaps the Lord has threatened my boy with death so that I might turn to him in faith and repentance, confessing my sins before him. So it was that. But not only that, David understood who his God was. He understood that God was gracious and kind and merciful, that God does not desire the death of the wicked. He knows that God was was eager to bless, that mercy was his forte, that uh, uh, to, to bring judgment was, as Isaiah the prophet says, that was his strange work, his alien work. Or as the Puritans would say, that's the work of God's left hand, but the work of his right hand, what he loves to do is show mercy and kindness. And David had said, had experienced that himself in this very situation. Though he had done dastardly deeds, though he had called for the judgment of God by his own wickedness, the Lord had put away his sin, and he did not die, and he's thinking... If God is so kind to me in that He withholds the punishment that I deserve, well, perhaps He will be kind to my son and withhold from him the consequences that he experiences, though he doesn't deserve them himself. And so he prays, and he fasts, and he pleads with the Lord, and he weeps and says, Lord, will you not have mercy upon my boy. So then, why this turnabout? Why does David turn off the taps of weeping and then turn on the shower taps to wash himself and change his clothes and to go to the temple to worship and then to have a feast with his, in, within his household? Why the change? Well, again, I think there are a couple of answers to that question. The first is that David has submitted to the providence and wisdom of God. The matter is closed. As long as the child was still alive, it was possible that God would have mercy and withhold the hand of affliction from the child. 
But now God has spoken with finality. Just as he had said in verse 14, the child who is born to you shall die, David acquiesces in the judgment of God. You see, it's, it's legitimate for us to argue with the Lord, to present our case before him. Remember how the Apostle Paul had this thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, and three times he pleaded that the Lord would remove it. But when the Lord finally said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, then he put off all pleading with it. He accepted it as the wisdom of God, and he goes on to say, I will now glory in that weakness. Well, that's where the Lord had brought David to, so that he submitted to his Father's will. He acquiesced and embraced his Father's providence. The child is now dead. And what would fasting do? Can I bring him back again? So that was the first reason why David had this remarkable about face. But there's another reason that he gives, and that's in verse 23. That is, that David was confident that this child was now with the Lord. This is what it says at the end of verse 23. Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David understood that this child was going to be placed in the grave, and then he would be taken to Abram's bosom. And one day, David himself would be there. After he was gathered to his fathers, after he had finished the course that God had planned for him, he too would be taken to Abram's bosom. He would be taken to heaven, to the presence of God, to the place where there are everlasting pleasures forevermore. My son is now there, he's saying. And one day, I shall be there as well. He was convinced that his boy was in heaven, absent from him, but present with the Lord. Now this is, if you know at all the history of theology, you know that this is the text, the first text that theologians and pastors go to to show the heart of God towards the children of believers. This is the comfort when our children are taken from us in infancy, that we can say, I shall not, or I cannot bring them back, but I shall go to them, though they will not return to me. But the Lord has taken them to himself. Now, if you look through the theologians, you'll know that there are a variety of positions regarding the deceased infants and what happens to those whom God chooses to take from this life in their infancy? There are some who would say on the basis of this text, well, we don't know what happens to them. David is not saying that this child is in heaven. He's just saying that this child has died, and he's going to die one day as well. And so there are theologians, even within the Reformed camp, who, who would say, we don't really know. We leave that with the Lord. We trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And if he thinks that our children ought to be with him, that's where they'll be. And if not, well then, not. But then there are other theologians who would say that all children, children of unbelievers, children of believers, it doesn't really matter, all children who die as infants are 
in heaven. This was the position of the Baptist, the great Baptist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 1800s. This is the position of John MacArthur to the present day, but it was also the position of uh, Presbyterian theologians in the, in the heyday of Presbyterian orthodoxy in, uh, the, in America, in, in Princeton, Charles Hodge, Benjamin Warfield would say that all children uh, who die as infants, we can be assured that they are elect, that they are saved, and that the Lord takes them to heaven. Well, that's not exactly the position of our Reformed confessions. Our Reformed confession says it somewhat differently. It talks not about all children, but it talks about the children of believers, that they are holy. It talks about godly parents who ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children. And that is by far the majority position within Reformed theology among its pastors and theologians. Take, for instance, Thomas Boston. He was a Scottish Presbyterian in the 1700s. He had six children die while they were young. He writes in his memoirs, I saw a reason to bless the Lord that I had been made the father of six children now in the grave and that they were with me but a very short time. But none of them lost. I will see them all at the resurrection. And then he writes to a father who had lost a child and he attempts to comfort the father in his grief. And this is what he says to this father. The next time you see your child, you will see him shining white in glory, having been washed in the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb who was an infant, a child, a boy, a youth, as well as a grown man, because he came a Savior of infants, little children, as well as of persons come at age." And then he says, it is a peculiar kindness, that is, a kindness of the Lord to dear babes. It is a peculiar kindness of the Lord that they were so early carried off. This is echoed, this perspective is echoed by Samuel Rutherford, another Scottish Presbyterian in the 1600s. He writes a letter to a grieving parent. He says, let our Lord pluck His own fruit at any season He pleases. They are not lost to you, but are laid up so well that they are offered in heaven where our Lord's best jewels lie. Then he has this picture to another bereaved parent. He says, consider this. If you had been at your child's bedside while your child was unwell, and you had seen Christ come for your child, you would not, you could not have stopped Christ's free love who could do without your child no longer. See what he's saying. If Christ wishes to take our children, either while they're in utero or while they're young, we could not stop him. If the Lord Jesus wishes to have those children with Him in heaven, we must give them up to Him. That is His prerogative, and we could not stop Him at all. 
And so that is, as I mentioned, by far the majority position within the Reformed Church. But, but what prompted them to say this? You can see why they would want to say that. After all, these children are so dear and sweet. They're innocent, as we say. Of course we want to think that they're with the Lord. Who wouldn't want to think that? But it's not sentiment that will give us the strength to sustain the doubts planted by our enemy. It's something more solid that we need. It's not just our own thoughts that will carry us through. We need something from God, some confidence that we can, some promise of God that we can place our confidence in. And again, these reformers would say, we have that very thing in the Word of God. Just take a look at what the wise men who gathered in Dort in 1618, 1619 said. He says, we must make judgment about God's will from His Word. So what does God's Word say? Well, it says that our children, that is the children of believers, they are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they, together with their parents, are included. So that's why. It's because of God's covenant promises. It's because of the way that God relates to His people, that He says that He's not only the God of parents, but He's the God of children as well. Remember what the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 17. He says there in verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be gone to you and to your offspring after you. That's the reason we're confident. It's not because it's just wishful thinking, but it's because God has promised to be my God, and He's promised to be the God of my children after me. And this is why, if we, if we go back to what Boston says, he says this, after he says that uh, his six children are now in the grave, but he will see them again at the re- resurrection, he follows it up with this, these words, that clause in the covenant and the God of your seed was sweet and full of sap. That is, that's what sustained him. That's what gave him courage. That's what calmed the anguish of his heart. That clause, I will be your God and the God of your offspring after you. And so he says to another parent that one of the reasons God takes our infants to himself is to let us experience the sweetness of that phrase in particular, I will be your God and the God of your offspring. That's the confidence that these pastors had. This is what gives comfort to godly people, that God loves us, and He loves our children, that He is our God and the God of our offspring, so that if in His providence and wisdom He decides to take our children from us, they may be absent from us, 
but we can be confident that they are present with the Lord. In fact, that's why the Lord has taken them, for that very purpose, because He wished them to be in His company, even though that meant tearing them from yours. This is the confidence we can have. And we see that reiterated in the next episode in 2 Samuel 12. David comforts his wife. I'm sure he comforted her with the promises of God that God had promised to be his God and the God of his children afterward. And then he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, which means peace. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah, which means loved of the Lord. And that, too, gives us a perspective on how we ought to see our children. Solomon, of course, was the great promised son of David, the one who was going to build the temple of the Lord. David had been the man of war and had defeated all his enemies all around him, but Solomon was the man of peace, and and Solomon was going to build the temple of the Lord. The Lord was never going to take his love away from Solomon. That's why he calls him Jedidiah, loved of the Lord. But I think we can think about that as well for our children. Whatever we might name our children, and few of us would name our children Jedediah, though I know someone who has. But even though we might name our children something else, the Lord sends messages to us through His Word and says, your child's name is Jedediah. I love your child. I love your son. I love your daughter. My love is from generation to generation to those who fear me. My righteousness is with children's children. God's love is a covenantal, a familial love, a generational love. He has affection for our children, not just for us, but for our children as well, precisely because they are our children. That's why he calls them holy in 1 Corinthians 7, not suggesting in any way that our children are don't need the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ or that all of our children are automatically saved. Of course not. That would not be a proper understanding of any of God's promises. They're never unconditional guarantees that uh, we can just presume upon. But they are promises of God. That's why the Lord Jesus took those children in His arms when the mothers brought them to Him, and He embraced them, and He blessed them, And he said, of such, the kingdom of heaven belongs. It belongs to to these and to adults who are like these, who in humility trust in me for every promised grace. That's the covenant promises of God for grieving, bereaved parents. But that's the promises of God for all of us who have been blessed with children And we need to raise our children in that confidence by faith. And a faith which doesn't presume and say, well, my children are baptized, they're members of the church, so I don't need to do nothing. They'll be okay in the end anyway. No, not necessarily. There are many baptized children who have gone to hell with the waters of baptism upon their forehead because they would not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They would not trust Him for their salvation. And in part as well, many times, because the parents were careless 
and refuse to nurture their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Well, let us not make that mistake. We say to the Lord, you have given us these children. They are yours before they are ours. And we will train our children by your grace that they might know their sin, that they might know the Savior, that they might trust in him, cling to your promises, and that they might live their lives in faithfulness to the God who has come to them at the headwaters of their lives and says, you're mine, I claim you. Now don't be foolish and turn from me. Don't be arrogant and reject me. I, as a shepherd, have placed my mark upon you. You can run if you will. You can reject my leadership if you wish. But know that judgment will then come upon you with severity. But if you trust me, if you listen to my voice, if you heed me, then I, the good shepherd, will lead you in paths of righteousness. And one day you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the great things to think about when you think about God's love for our children is to think how immense His love is, that He cares for us, and He cares for our children too. And as we think about that, then our hearts are drawn all the more to this covenant God, and we love Him all the more because He has first loved us, and He has loved our children as well. May God comfort us with His grace and give us His assurance. Let us pray together. O Lord, our God and Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the way it reveals Yourself to us as the God of us and the God of our seed after us. We pray that You'd give us grace as parents, that we would trust Your promises and train our children in appropriate ways that are in line with what you have given to us in your word. And we pray, our God, for those who are grieving because of the loss of infants, either in utero or after birth or even stillborn. We pray that you would minister your kindness to them, that they would know that you are a far better parent than they could ever have been and that their children, though absent from them, are present with the Lord Jesus. And that the Lord Jesus, who took children in His arms on earth, has even a greater capacity of love in His glorified humanity in heaven, and that He loves our children, that He cares for them, that He's tender-hearted towards them, and that He will keep them. We look forward today to the day, rather, when faith will become sight, when we will see and uh, rejoice with those who have gone before us as we stand before the throne and giving worship to you, the one who is on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. And we pray this in our Savior's name. Amen.